chest and squares its shoulders to be about that particular agenda all around the world. But when we talk about that freedom, we're not necessarily talking about the spiritual freedom that Jesus came to give to all human beings. We're talking about a civic kind of freedom. A freedom to pursue the dictates of our conscience so long as it's lawful. Uh, and sometimes even because of that conscience to oppose and change and reshape law. As Americans, this is something that, that we've come to champion, but many of us have forgotten that, that that very thought of there being a place where kings have no right to assert their authority, the, the land of conscience, the, the inner world of the heart and inner convictions, that that's really the birthright of those who have followed in this world following the king and his entrance and his reshaping of all that. Up until that time, even the gods were considered really the, uh, the local uh, mascots for a city or a region. Uh, gods were aligned with the powers that be. Uh, almost the cheerleaders, the, uh, uh, the you know, they, they were pistol Pete uh, for, you know what I mean? Uh, this concept that there was a God above all others, that there is a God that is the God and the creator of us all was something ingrained in the heritage of, uh, of, of the Jews that Jesus brought even more fully onto the stage of the whole world. Until so today, in the Western world, it's hard to think of when we say God, not conceiving God in the way Jesus largely reshaped it. Jesus didn't shrink back uh, from the snares of political traps. He spoke the truth so confidently, he often redefined the questions. He, he reconceived of a divine kingdom and the earthly kingdoms, not as places that were disposing one another, but that where his followers could be those who exercised a dual citizenship, to be citizens of heaven and nevertheless responsible citizens of the kingdoms that we live in in this world. It was an approach to the puzzle that the world had never seen before and that the world often misses today as it did then. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said that as he stood before Pilate in bonds with his execution hanging in the balance. My kingdom is not of this world. But Jesus asserted just as powerfully with the very first words of his ministry, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Unless you understand these two kingdoms overlapping and uh, God's kingdom informing the way that we govern and live with one another in this world, it's almost impossible to, to uh, uh, reconcile those statements. There's a tension within them that's intentional. One day they thought they'd trap Jesus. They said, Jesus, you know, the... Caesar requires us to pay a tax, but also the temple requires a tax. So you tell us, should we be faithful to God or be faithful to Caesar? And Jesus said, you hypocrites. The word came up again. 
you hypocrites, he said, bring, bring, bring me a coin. And they brought him a coin, and he said, whose likeness is on this coin? And they're stamped on the front, you know, like George Washington is on our quarter. Is he still stamped on a quarter? I think he's still stamped on a quarter. We stamp all kinds of things on quarters today. I don't know what's really on a quarter anymore. But on those days, Caesar's face was on, his likeness was on the coin. He says, whose likeness is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus gave an answer, which is still a puzzle. He said, well, then render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And unto God, what is God's? And he astounded them with his wisdom. And ever since, this world is trying, is, has been trying to wrap its understanding around the answer to that question to the question. What is God's? What is his reign? and his rightful place of reign. And what is the rightful place of reign of the authorities of, of, of this world? It's real important to note what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, uh, you godly people just go along with whatever the, the government says because they're the ones that have the real power in this world. He didn't say that. Nor did he say, just do whatever you have to do to be faithful to God the powers of this world are irrelevant. You know, owe them no respect. J Jesus put two things in dynamic tension there uh, that we always make a mistake when we abandon that tension. Jesus was claiming the influence of a king. But what did he mean by that? Herod thought that it was not... There's two realities to that. One is that it's a transcendent kingdom. The other is that it's an imminent kingdom breaking in and working out its effects and its dynamics in the world right here where we are. It's both of those things all the time. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. A transcendent kingdom and, and a real reality around. Now, this makes, this is very important. I'm not just getting lost in theological jargon this morning. This is critical to keep us, from, keep us out of the ruts Herod forgot about the transcendent nature of the kingdom. He thought that working the power and coercion plays of the kingdoms of this world, that he, if he could just wipe out Jesus, that it would be gone, that it would be done away with. So he thought to kill off Jesus. Those were the political tools of the power of the state to be able to coerce people even against their will because of law and because of power. Jesus' kingdom fun, uh, functioned on a completely different dynamic. And as we Christians find power in this world, this is something that we dare not forget. Jesus' kingdom was a kingdom that appealed not by the coercion uh, of, of exercising power over others, but by the invitation to real authority and real truth. His was a kingdom that was established in the conscience and in the heart and then lived out from there. It was nothing that was forced upon someone else. Jesus' kingdom didn't get behind the, the, the palm branch waving brigade. His way was not the way of Herod's or the kings of this world. And when we Christians go too far to dictate for others their own conscience, we're stepping over bounds. And when we neglect to speak God's heart for those who are powerless, we abandon this kingdom. It's a dynamic tension, and we never escape it. 
Herod fought against Christ's kingdom because he thought it was just a temporal kingdom. And if he just wiped it out here, if he could just win, everything would be right. I think Pilate thought the same way, that it was a, either that it was just a kingdom here, that if he could manipulate around it, that, that he would be free. Remember how he washed his hands after Jesus had told him that my kingdom is not of this world, as if there's some way, somehow, that we can escape accountability to the God who is God simply because we have power that others have to recognize. There's no soap and water that washes that clean. We'll all be accountable, our scriptures say, for what we live, the decisions that we make, the policies that we support. Will our vote survive the test of fire? Will our approach, our approaches to represent the, 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 uh, um, the kingdom of God amongst the kingdoms of man be something for which someday we will be spoken to, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Herod, Herod fought against that kingdom, not, not recognizing its transcendence. Pilate dismissed it, thinking that he could escape accountability to it. The zealots tried to hijack it with their palm branches on that day as they walked into Jerusalem. Today, that's often the case. Which is the Christian party? The Democrats or the Republicans? Neither. We hijack the authority of God for our own agendas and our own purposes. We almost always do violence to the kingdom of God. Jesus insisted on this truth, that God's kingdom is transcendent, that all the kingdoms of this world must constantly be open to the revelation of God, the guidance of God, values beyond their own, opinions outside of their own circles in order to be open to what the kingdom would do if it fully broke into the now. But that doesn't mean that because God's uh, kingdom is transcendent, that it's not something that we can contain or control or label as our own, that that, that means that that kingdom is irrelevant, that it doesn't have implications here in the now, that we are responsible and even held accountable for how we work them out. I think both are true. That's why Jesus A missionary told the story of going into a country, third world country, where the natives were tribal and uh, they were constantly warring with one another, the highlanders against the cannibals in the valley. And he worked with the highlanders for years and eventually started translating the Bible into their own native tongue. And as he did, he realized that these tribal people had never developed a concept of a transcendent God that could be God over all. They were still locked in those old opinions of gods that were the, the resident mascots of different special interests. And so the God of those in the highlands and the God of the cannibals in the valley had to be two different gods. It was an us and them dynamic, right? 
But, but this missionary had a hard time translating with them not even having a word for God. How, how do you even begin the Bible? In the beginning, there was God. I mean, you can't even get through the first sentence without... And then he discovered that there was a concept in these native people, these tribal people of a, uh, a uh, judge in the family, a, a patriarch, uh, a great father that those within the tribe would go to in order to uh, get issues uh, decided between them uh, when there were issues amongst them. They would go to this heo, they called him. And so he thought he had no better word than that. In the beginning was heo, and he created the heavens and the earth. And as he explained his translation to the natives, they immediately got something that often is missed. He said, no, wait a minute. There, there's, a, there's a heo of all peoples? And he said, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And they said, well, if there's a heo of all peoples, and heo is the heo of us, and heo is of the cannibals that live in the valley, then something's got to change because they are then of us. And something did change. And the wars of an eternal us and them, Hatfield and McCoys, were given up for some transcendent reality that they found in understanding truly who and what God was. I, I, I wonder if the tribe of the Democrats and the tribe of the Republicans, if, if this truly dawned upon us, what, what differences there might be. When, when we're locked in, in, a, in a fight of winner take all, how much do we really listen to one another? How many solutions are lost because statistics are being kept in the win and loss column? How many Congresses thwart a president? How many presidents push their will on a Congress all for the sake of winning? all exercising power. What are the implications then of, of a kingdom and of a king that takes the place that Jesus insists upon taking in this world? We can not only not bear to dismiss the transcendency of God's kingdom, we can't avoid its relevance either. There have been Christians through the years, the Essenes and others after them that chose the path of withdrawing from the world. But if that withdrawing never becomes re-engaging, we miss some of the tension that Jesus preserves for us here. Render to God that which is to God. I think God wants us active in our societies. Even those who are involved in the political process. When Jesus said to render under God what is God's and to render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, he was making the point that not all power is Caesar's. That there's no concept aligned with Christ where a power of this world is given absolute authority. We owe to Christ His words, His stance, His lack of compromise, many of the roots of our understandings of limited government that beyond the exercise of power, there is a greater appeal 
to the authority of sacrificial love and truth. Jesus' kingdom. And that if government is not exercising power in such a way that aligns with the authority of love and truth, then it's a miss that it must be corrected. The Scriptures teach us to pray for our rulers. But they don't teach us to pray to our rulers. It's a very important balance. Because of these words of Jesus, those who have claimed absolute power through the centuries and in some places still in this world are confronted by a whole mass of people in this world that appeal to a greater authority. If Jesus had not spoken what he spoke on those days, I wonder if we would have ever developed the concept that no one is above the law, not even he or she with all the power. These are concepts that speak sanity to a world that would often run on insane tangents. Paul called us to pray for our rulers, to submit to their authority. But there's also times when for the sake of being salt in the world and light in the darkness, those people of faith must oppose the policies of those with power. William Wilberforce did for years in Britain. And only after centuries because of the influence, not of power, but because of the influence of authority. Authority grounded in truth. Eventually, authority swayed. Slavery was outlawed throughout Britain. Martin Luther King marched for civil rights, but he didn't do so toting a a rifle. He did so speaking truth, speaking it peaceably. And eventually that voice was heard. I think perhaps too often we Christians today are too zealous for power and are not quick enough to follow our Lord's example to build authority within society by how we serve, by how we love, by the solutions we offer, by the way that we're willing to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters. I heard the story of Elias Santana. He was a a doctor in Haiti. He he was one of the few that... uh, had the specialties and the gifts that he had. He could have made a mint had he worked in a more lucrative society. In fact, at sometimes he would practice his medicine in Puerto Rico for a couple of months out of the year so that he would have the funds he needed to go back to Haiti to buy pharmaceuticals for the people that were there and to give them away as he cared for the people in that society. One day after working long hours in his clinic, 
He took the megaphone and stood on the back of the Jeep as those he had been serving, served gathered around to, to hear what he had to say. And as he did, someone who was observing this, this occasion noticed that within the crowd was one of the socialist leaders of the day who considered him his abject enemy. He was against the proliferation of Christianity. He vied for near-absolute government control. And yet he was there listening to Elias. The person approached him, this official, and said, Do you realize what you're listening to? You're listening to the gospel you oppose. And this socialist official said, Elias Santana has earned the right to be heard. I, I really don't think that all of our problems are going to be solved by winning any elections. They're much bigger than that. They've proven much bigger than the political maneuverings of uh, any political competitor in recent years. Perhaps it's time to revisit the words of Jesus and learn a bit more about this tension that he perpetuated. Jesus was the kind to say, come and follow me. And I don't think it would have mattered if you were Democrat or Republican. The invitation would have been the same. Because there were those to whom he extended that invitation in those days that were even farther apart than Democrats and Republicans of today. You remember, he, he invited Levi, one who was compliant with Rome, seen as a traitor among his people. And then he also invited Simon, the zealot, those who carried knives uh, up in their sleeve, you know, a quick switchblade action for anyone who was such a, a compromiser with the enemy. They would take him out in the back alleys. And Jesus said, hey, Simon, hey, Levi, Matthew, you, you follow me. And by the way, you two guys are rooming together. And somehow the result of that was that Simon became one that wasn't a murderer, but one that was a martyr. He became a bigger person because of it. Somehow Matthew, that was the traitor, and those that had turned his back on the people was the one that penned a gospel for Jewish ears. Think Jesus knew what he was doing? That's why he's my king. And I believe we can trust him with all things. Even the, the messiness of our political situation in this day. He, he left us a legacy that has become our understanding of, of limited government. That even government, those with all the power, are accountable to others. We the people questionable if that kind of government could have ever emerged without the roots that Jesus gave us from these backwater places in Palestine. Jesus didn't resolve the tension. He preserved it and then called us up to something higher than just winning the case for our own particular personal interests. He called us out of fighting with each other for following Him. And I know what I'm prescribing this day. I'm not naive. I 
I know that this is tougher than winning any election. But for too long, we've, we've just taken sides as Christians. Rather than serving our brothers and sisters with real solutions. Jesus' legacy, individual rights, the limited sphere of government, the separation for freedom to worship, that's the transcendent sphere, and the power of the state, that's the temporal sphere. Freedom of conscience, power checked by authority. Tony Campolo, who disturbs me about as much as any Christian writer I've ever read, wrote a book called Red Letter Christians where he calls us to some sanity I think that's worth considering. He said that if we're going to place our highest loyalty with Christ and let other loyalties shake out as they should, then we as Christians in the political realm ought to be those that are always more concerned with issue than party. I think there's wisdom in that. that we should be people more interested in in solutions that serve the interests of our brothers and sisters in this society and all those whom God values. Not just our own parties or our particular interests, victories. This is what it means to be able to step back into that transcendent point of view and to try to hear from God things that might be costly to each of us, but might be a cost that actually builds the hold. He he said that red-letter Christians are those who are to consider authority a greater thing than power and live from places that demonstrate love and service to this world rather than just those who have won the right to enforce their opinions on others. He, he said that knowledge ought to trump blind devotion. And as I've read his book, I've, I've, I've realized there's sides to these issues that I've never considered. Just causes that I have been blind to. I, I realize that I've not been a participant in many solutions. It's really not as simple as we often make it. It's not just the economy, stupid. I I, I think our country would be blessed by a more vigorous economy. I want to see that kind of prosperity brought back to our country. But the question is, what would we do with it? Tony tells the story of being in Haiti, strangely enough, same place I mentioned earlier, and he was there at some convention, staying in a hotel, came down that morning for breakfast, and as he ate breakfast, he looked just outside his breakfast window there in the hotel, and there were three or four uh, little kids with extended bellies that were up next to the glass, looking in there at at that sausage and eggs, uh, obviously malnourished, obviously in the grips of poverty, and he couldn't take another bite. His waiter realized what was happening. Perhaps it happened uh, 
more often than we would expect. And the waiter came over and said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. He lowered the shade outside on the boys and, and said, I'm sorry, sir. Enjoy your breakfast. And Tony said, how could I? How can I enjoy my breakfast any morning? Red-letter Christians, we keep being challenged by the words of Christ. And we, we refuse to close a deaf ear to his challenges to us. And, and we may be far from being able to reach them in many ways, but I bet Jesus wants Christians working within the democratic circles and Christians working within the, the Republican circles. Where is that salt not needed? Many of us as Christians were, and some of us are Democrats, many of us were, were, were shocked this year when the Democratic Party withdrew the name of God from all of their policies, just kind of wiped it out of the, the, the platform and but you think heaven didn't cheer when a Democrat and a Christian said, I'm not sure that's the way we want to go. Brought it back to a vote on the floor and turned the tide. I thank God for that brother's witness. I thank God for the witness of brothers and sisters within the Republican Party that even if the economy gets going again, still realizes that we as a people have responsibility for those who cannot, for those who do not have, for those who are impoverished. And for too long, the authority of that party has been compromised by what policy-wise seems to be a blind eye to many in need. I find it interesting, though, that the present candidate for the Republican Party, whose moral authority was dismissed as an out-of-touch uh, uh, rich man who had no care for those around him, has suddenly been somehow in the political stream of things recaptured because it wasn't just his power that appealed. It was the authority of a pastor who actually cared and whose heart broke with others and who tried to help some of the others around him. Now, I'm not endorsing Romney, and I'm not endorsing Obama. I'm endorsing Jesus. But the difficulty of the thing is Jesus ain't on the ballot. It is a forced choice. But hear me, Jesus does not turn his heart from the political agenda just when an election is won or lost. He hurts for the people that our systems are not helping. I, 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 you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Obamacare. I'm just going to tell you that right out. And I can say that because I'm a pastor that has free speech as well. I'm not a big fan of Obamacare, but I tell you what, if we repeal Obamacare and millions of people still are unserved in this country and don't have the health care that a decent person treated with dignity would receive, we ain't done. We can't become complacent when our team wins or when our team loses. Simon and Matthew need to talk it through. 
we need to hear what each other is trying to champion and not just be satisfied with victories and losses, but become people who work together for solutions. We are people that lead with a vote. But we don't stop there. The vote that we lead with is, first of all, who is Lord and who is King. That's not up for election in our hearts. And His kingdom will be the kingdom that will prevail. There was a doctor in, in Ethiopia. I don't know why I have so many doctor stories this morning, but I'll close with this. And there, there was a doctor in Ethiopia, uh, and he was there when Christians were largely persecuted. Uh, they had a socialist government at the time that was uh, terribly unkind to Christians. And as a doctor, he was often famous for his practice. Because of that, he was carefully watched, and even sometimes one who lived with privilege. But as a Christian... And as a known Christian, he was often jailed as one who had power that seemed to be in opposition to the power that be of the day. John Ortberg was over there visiting this particular gentleman's church, and when he did, they, they had to shut the windows and come at different times of the day so it wouldn't be obvious that there was a gathering within the shut windows. And John watched as these people worshipped the Lord and poured their hearts out in authentic worship. He noticed that they, they talked with one another and responded with one another on levels of life and intimacy that he had never seen in the United States. They knew what was going on and they had each other's back. It was told that there was a, a, a foreign teacher in their midst who, who understood the Word and who spoke for Christ and the people almost in unison stood up and said, teach us, teach us, and they pulled cards from their pockets and little pads and sharpened pencils and notes and were, were eager to hear something of the kingdom. He said, in, in that church, there was no such thing as a nominal Christian. In that society, it was impossible. It was about as possible as being a casual chainsaw juggler. It's just too darn dangerous. People sold out. He went to the pastor after he spoke, and he said, Pastor, I'm sure you must pray often that the persecution would be no more and your people wouldn't suffer like this. And the pastor looked at him puzzled, and he said, Why should I pray that we not suffer? It hadn't occurred to him. So far as he knew, Christians were at their best when times were at their worst. Is that who we are? Today, that socialist leader whose picture used to be on the posters around town next to Marx and Lenin are now touted as old posters of a bygone day. They call it the Three Stooges poster. And yet those who were in prisons at that time are now that society's heroes. My kingdom is not of this world. But that doesn't mean it's any less real. It's the most lasting of kingdoms. 
And as we work in the kingdoms of this world, we leverage things for eternity. This is a serious responsibility. One that I hope we discharge favorably this November 6th and November 7th and November 8th. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we trust you as our king. We thank you for placing us in a land that's so much the benefactor of the tensions that you, by your words and by your example, brought to bear in this world. We thank you for our freedoms, that our voice even makes a difference, that we can even cast a vote as part of the legacy that we enjoy from you. So, Lord God, we give you thanks that 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 privilege is ours and that that responsibility is something that you long to guide us to to walk out in a way that's faithful to you. Help us not to shrink into the politics of power of this world, but to lead with true moral authority by how we serve. Help us to become a people who don't force our ways on others, but who let the truth and sacrificial love win hearts to the right. Your ways the right ways. Help us to discern them, Father, as we hear differing points of view from one another. Someone speaking a concern that we've let a shade be drawn on. Help us to hear the causes for justice and for right, even in those platforms and those candidates that we might oppose. We pray, God, that justice would roll down like rivers. That you would redeem this country. That we as your church would not sit on the sidelines and make you work alone. Help us, Lord God. Guide us. Give us humble hearts that are willing to be a part of the solutions that we can seize this day and the days ahead. We pray for our rulers. We pray for those for whom we vote, that they would be given wisdom beyond themselves, that your spirit would work to redeem this land, not for the sake of America, but for the sake of what you've called America to be in this world. For your kingdom, Lord. For your kingdom. Let's stand and sing together this closing song of devotion.